Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 49. This episode, we're going to be looking at the 13th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. And later on in the episode, I will present a spotlight on radio's second Lois Lane, Helen Choate. Before we get into that stuff, though, I've actually got another iTunes review. But I also want to confirm something that I speculated on back in episode 45. And that is that Action Comics number 24 was the first use of Superman's microscopic vision. Uh, Before that, we'd only seen him use X-ray and telescopic. So, hooray for new powers. Uh, For all intents and purposes, we've hit the two-year mark for Superman. And it's amazing to see how the powers have advanced in just that, what is really a, a relatively short amount of time. But as for that iTunes review, this one comes from someone using the handle AZGirl7, and it reads, Entertaining and educational. Host Michael Bradley does an excellent job covering the earliest adventures of the Man of Steel. His summaries and reviews are very concise and easy to follow, even if you haven't read the comics he's talking about, and the extra tidbits and background historical information helps to put the stories in context. This show offers a great look at how Superman got started and how he grew in those early days. Two thumbs way up with five stars. And I thank you, AZGirl7. I really love hearing that people find the show entertaining and educational, as I really do try to be both. <laughs> Maybe even to a fault sometimes. But uh, but no, I. You know, one of the many reasons I thought this would be a good idea for a podcast is that there's just so much misinformation out there. It's not always the fault of the author. I mean, I guess it is if they don't, you know, at the, at the end of the day, if they're not double-checking their sources. But oftentimes there will be an error in a write-up, and that often carries forward uh, when people don't double-check. So, yeah, but I do like putting the stories in, in context, both historically and with the other books that were being published at the time, as I really think that helps to inform the stories and and give a broader picture of why things maybe were written in a certain way or or, uh, the the topics that the stories are focusing on. So again, thank you. I'm glad you enjoy the show, and I really do appreciate the review. dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands. Of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men. And Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him with the living drain of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Forecast, ffcast.libsyn.com.
www.ghostbusters.com. So like I said, this episode we are looking at the 13th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper strip. The storyline ran for seven weeks, a total of 42 strips, numbers 355 through 396 of the serial. This is the second longest storyline from the Daily so far, with only Royal Death Plot, which we covered back in episode 27, being longer. And it was actually quite a bit longer, being 96 strips, so that was more than double the size of this one. But this story ran from March 4th to April 20th, 1940. During those nearly two months of publication, the radio serial broadcast the last three storylines that Charlie and I have looked at, as well as the first half of the first one we'll be looking at next year. The Sunday newspaper strip was kicking off a lengthy storyline that, we'll, that we'll be looking at next year, probably sometime in February. And comic book-wise, there was just one issue out, Action Comics number 24. But it ended just a few days before the likely release of Action Comics number 25. Credits for our story go to Jerry Siegel as writer, and art-wise, the story was penciled by Paul Cassidy, with Paul Loretta inking the first half and Cassidy inking the last half of the story himself, according to credits at the Grand Comics database. And the story has been titled... Trouble in the Tenements. That's right, folks. Superman is heading back to the Tenements. We all remember what happened last time he did that, don't we? Will this be an encore presentation? Let's find out. Our story opens in the fine offices of the Daily Planet, where a call comes over the police scanners about a, a madman running loose in the in the slum district. Since Clark Kent is just lounging about in his boss's office, Editor Taylor tells him to go out and get the scoop. Arriving at the scene, Clark gets the 411 from an officer who tells him that a guy named Lewis is on the roof of the tenement, tearing it up with a hatchet, and if he refuses to surrender, they'll have to take him down by force. The man's daughter, Barbara, is also on scene and pleads with the officers not to do it before breaking through the police line and dashing into the building. Slipping into a nearby alley, Clark removes his clothes, revealing a costumed form and saying, for what is truly the first time, as this strip was published before the radio episode that Charlie and I talked about last episode, that this is a job for Superman. Up on the roof, the man is waving a hatchet and yelling at the people on the ground below. Barbara reaches the roof and tries to calm him down, but filled with blind rage, Lewis goes after her. High overhead, possibly flying, there's, there's been no official reference to Superman flying in the newspapers or comics, as he does on the radio, but he's pretty high up here, and, and upon seeing the man's attack, Superman streaks in between the two, so the man's hatchet blow strikes his chest, thus saving the girl. Apparently freaked out by Superman's sudden appearance, Lewis tries to jump off the roof, but Superman leaps after him and grabs his ankle. He then grabs hold of the ledge of the building to stop his own fall, but the building crumbles in his grip and both men plummet downward. As the people on the street stare in abject horror, Superman grabs a window ledge and stops their fall, but Lewis continues to struggle, trying to break free of Superman's grip. And Superman opts to give him what he wants, leaping clear of the window, and with Lewis in his arm, using his powerful muscles to land safely on the street below. After handing Lewis over to the authorities, Superman then leaps off, or flies off, depending on how you want to see it. It's a very flight-esque pose. It, it kind of reminds me of the Christopher Reeve movies, where he'd sort of, you know, he'd sort of fly up a little bit and then turn and wave as he's flying off. It's very cool. But very soon after, Clark Kent arrives back on scene, just as Barbara reaches the street, narrowly missing the ambulance pulling away. And I love this panel too. There's uh, there's little lines that kind of look like speed lines. I'm not sure if they're actually supposed to be speed lines or just kind of vague background detail, but they really look more like speed lines to me, especially given how they sort of overlap Clark's figure slightly. And I really dig this. It it remind it kind of reminds me of Smallville or or even Lois and Clark how Clark would just use a burst of super speed to suddenly appear on screen. In Smallville, you just hear this whoosh, 
and there'd be a, a flurry of papers and, and Clark's suddenly there. No one really noticing the huge gust of wind that just blew through an enclosed office. <laughs> but that's kind of how I picture this here. But since Barbara missed the ambulance, Clark offers to take her to the hospital. And apparently okay with getting into a car with a strange man that she's never met, or maybe just too distraught to think about it, she agrees. On the way, Clark talks to the girl about her dad, and she explains the living conditions in the tenement and how they're, they're extremely bad. Uh, because of a lack of heat, her mother died a month ago from pneumonia, and her father has been upset ever since. Understandably so. When they arrive at the hospital, they learn the doctor is still examining her father. So they wait in the waiting room, and while they're waiting, Barbara thanks Clark and asks him to tell her more about himself. But Clark says that she's much more interesting and says that she should tell him more about her family. So Barbara explains that her father's been out of work for years, leaving only her income to support the whole family. And apparently her younger brother Tommy has also been a handful because he hangs out with the wrong crowd and frequently gets into trouble. All our troubles are due to the terrible slum living conditions, she says. Has society completely forgotten about us helpless little people? Why doesn't someone aid us? Thankfully, before this turns into a political discussion, Clark chimes in, reminding that Superman helped out earlier and that just maybe he'll help out again sometime. About then, the nurse says they can go see Lewis, and Clark starts to leave, but Barbara stops him, saying that she wants him to meet her dad. Barbara starts to make introductions, but is interrupted by a lawyer who works for the owner of the tenements and he busts in, demanding money for the damage that Lewis caused. Clark says what we're all thinking, and when the lawyer still won't shut up, picks the guy up and tosses him out the door. Mild-mannered milk toast, indeed. I really think Clark needs more of these scenes, and they are coming. Maybe not as quickly as one might like, but they are coming. And I just really love this scene. I mean, Clark being portrayed, or portraying himself, I guess, as that weak, uh, clumsy lout is a big part of the mythology. But, you know, sometimes you just want to see Clark say, okay, I've had enough of your stuff, and then throw some guy out the door. It's just great. So, sometime later, as Clark and Barbara leave the hospital, they're caught up to by an officer, a police captain, Casey. Now, down the road a short ways, Siegel's going to introduce another police officer, a Sergeant Casey. I don't think it's the same as this guy, because when Sergeant Casey is introduced, he serves as more of an antagonist. But it's interesting, knowing that character is coming, that Siegel introduces this Captain Casey here. But anyway, Casey stops Clark in a scene that seems rather random, but it's, it's funny, it actually does serve a, a big purpose in the story. Just thought I'd remind you, Casey says. My name is spelled C-A-S-E-Y. Last time you put my name in an article, you misspelled it, and someone else got the credit. So the fact that Clark is a reporter surprises Barbara, and she angrily slaps Clark across the face, accusing him of only feigning interest in order to get a story for his paper. Later, Clark returns to his department, and while licking his wounded pride cuts a check to cover the damages Lewis caused and get the attorney off of his back. A few days later, Clark just happens to be at the juvenile court for a story when he sees Barbara and her younger brother Tommy, who's in trouble for stealing tires. Barbara pleads with the court for mercy, saying that Tommy only steals because the slums are a bad influence. If he's a criminal, no one is to blame but society. The judge says if there was some way he could be sure that Tommy would stop his criminal behavior, he might not have to go to reform school. So Clark steps up and offers to get him a job at the Daily Planet, so the judge agrees that Tommy can be released on probation. Afterwards, Barbara thanks Clark for helping out, saying that she misjudged him. Unfortunately, Tommy is less than thrilled about his new employment. And after being coerced to go back to the planet, Tommy proceeds to give Editor, editor Taylor grief before Taylor finally gives in to Clark's pleas and assigns the boy to work in the circulation department. When Tommy is harassing Taylor, he tells him that the, uh, the Daily Planet needs to run better comics like the Morning Pictorial. I told you back in episode 29, I think it was, 
that we'd be seeing more references to the pictorial, which is a rival paper in Metropolis. And this is the first, and while it's only a name check, there will be more substantial use of it down the road. So when she finds out about Tommy's job, Barbara is just overjoyed, grabbing Clark around the neck and giving him a big old kiss, very much to the surprise of Lois, who just happens to enter at exactly that moment. Later, Tommy begins his new job, even though he's still not very happy about it. But as the days pass, he seems to be doing a pretty good job at it, so Clark convinces Taylor to let Tommy deposit cash in the safe as a show of trust in order to bring out the good in Tommy. A few days later, Clark goes home with Tommy. And why that is, we're not really told. But Barbara is embarrassed by Clark's sudden visit because of the ramshackle appearance of their apartment. But Clark dismisses it, saying it's fine, and then hits on Barbara before we cut to a little later when Tommy is taking, or excuse me, talking to a few of his friends. The guys try to bring Tommy into robbing a local store, but Tommy says no, telling them about his job and how he's trying to go straight. No more of that stuff for me, Tommy says. You see this key? It can open the safe at the Daily Planet Circulation Department. I sure hope no known criminals I happen to be talking to takes the key, breaks in and steals the money, because they'd blame me, and that would be terrible. Okay, actually he doesn't say the part about the criminals stealing the key, but he does very specifically point it out to his friends. The same friends, mind you, who were just trying to rook him into the theft and other illegal activities. Despite the stupid move, however, having overheard the conversation with his superhearing, Clark is happy to know that Tommy truly is having a change of heart. The next morning, though, when Clark arrives at work, everyone is upset with him because the safe has been cleaned out, and, of course, Tommy is the prime suspect. When Tommy arrives at work, the police put him under arrest and demand to know where the money is. Tommy claims that he doesn't know, saying that he lost his safe key and swearing that he doesn't know where it is. Saying he has faith in Tommy, Clark ducks into a nearby storeroom, changes to Superman, and heads out to try and prove Tommy's innocence. Soaring above the city, or maybe leaping, it's, again, it's really getting hard to tell these days. But anyway, high in the sky, Superman spies two of Tommy's friends. While using his super hearing to listen in, Superman trails the boys to the home of Jip O'Leary. The boys demand payment for stealing the key from Tommy, but Jip just tosses them a couple dollars and then bullies them to leave. Just then, though, Superman climbs through the window, rushes at Jip, and snatches the thug's gun. Superman throws the gun across the room as the boys go Jip to try and bully Superman. Our hero picks up Jip, whirls him about like a top, and then throws him down to the ground and threatens to smash a desk over his head. As Jip's cronies try to rush in to help, Superman throws the desk at them, blocking their path. He then grabs Jip and smashes through the wall for an exit, while warning the kids to behave or he'll be back. After dropping Jip off at the local police station and telling him to make a full confession, Clark returns to the Daily Planet, where Taylor apologizes to Tommy and gives him his job back. Meanwhile, having heard of Tommy's arrest, Barbara rushes to the police station, only to find that Tommy's been released and is back at the Daily Planet. So... She goes to the paper where Lois is talking to Clark about Superman's intervention. And thus begins reason number 612 of why Lois Lane is completely insane. I'm just going to read the dialogue here because it's, well, it's insane. The caption is simply, later. Lois says, so Superman cleared Tommy. Again, I have reason to be grateful to this cloaked figure of mystery. And yes, this dialogue is very stiff and awkward when you read it out loud, but it's clobbering time isn't exactly natural. It's clobbering time. (laughs) Anyway, after Lois says that, Barbara enters and says, Pardon my interrupting, but would you mind driving me to an appointment, Clark? Always wanted to help out. Clark replies, Sorry, Lois, I've already arranged to drive Barbara home. So they leave, and Lois watches from the window as they pull off, and with her fist clenched, says, What's gotten into Clark? I've never thought I'd see the day when he wouldn't obey my slightest desire. What? 
got nothing here, folks. Nothing except that Lois Lane is absolutely crazy. And maybe almost to a stalker level. So, Clark drops off Barbara at the tenement, but hears a commotion inside. Barbara is afraid her father might be causing trouble again. So it's nice to see that she has faith in her father, and that she just doesn't think he's, you know, crazy old Mr. Lewis causing trouble again. But, as it turns out, it isn't her dad, but the noise is coming from a neighboring apartment. Clark rushes in to find a couple thugs beating up an old man. And after roughing up Clark as well, the thugs warn Clark to stay out of things, or he'll regret it. Once the thugs leave, Clark talks to their victim, and the man explains that he had gotten a loan from the Wesley Loan Company, and hasn't been able to pay it back because he gambled away the loan to two men, the same two men who were roughing him up, who he had met in the loan office. Clark gets angry about the racket, and Barbara offers to help Clark expose them. Later, Barbara takes out a loan, and soon she and Clark are harassed by the the loan sharks, and Clark is forced into a car. They take him somewhere. It's it's not really clear where. I, I presume it's an office somewhere, but it's it anyway. It's not important where they're at. What's important is that they force Clark into a rigged game of poker, where they win all the money that Barbara just loaned. So this leaves Barbara concerned, knowing that the crooks cheated. But Clark tells her not to worry, and that she should just leave it to him. Him, and of course, Superman. Switching to his tights and cape, Superman pays a visit to the crooks, who are laughing at their swindle. After climbing through the window, Clark goads them into playing a game, and proceeds to clean them out, despite their crooked deck, by using his X-ray vision to read the cards. Which, of course, begs the moral question of, is it really okay to cheat to beat cheaters? I mean, what's that saying exactly? But we've seen Superman do this before in a card game, so yeah. Anyway, the crooks aren't too happy about their loss and try to take out Superman via a uh, poisoned glass of water. The drugs have no effect on our hero, of course, so the crooks tried a more conventional method by smashing Superman over the head with a blackjack. Annoyed with the affront, Superman starts smacking the crooks around before forcing them to confess that they work for Wesley. Returning to the loan offices, Superman spies with his X-ray vision and discovers that not only are they running a loan racket, but they're also printing fake lottery tickets. Fed up, Superman crashes into the building and smashes their equipment before leaping off and leaving the crooks for the police. Back at the Daily Planet, Clark tells Taylor that something has to be done to clean up the slums, and Taylor grants his permission for Clark to do whatever is necessary. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We can see where this is going, can't we? Last time Superman dealt with a slum problem, he, well, he wrecked an entire section of the city to force the government to build new housing, in what is really a defining moment for Superman in, in this golden age. So, as one might guess, given carte blanche to do whatever needs done, Superman's about to tear it up. But nope, Superman doesn't do a thing. Because this is a job for Clark Kent. Over the next few weeks, Clark gets down to business, writing a series of articles pushing for improvement of the slum areas. He then goes the extra step by making daily radio announcements, filming movie shorts, and even making public appearances to benefit the cause. At one such appearance, he gets a bunch of hecklers trying to trying to shout him down, but some muscle from the Daily Planet tossed them out on their behinds, or as the strip puts it in a much more politically correct fashion, quell the interference. Soon, Clark is visited by a politician by the name of Jay Conklin, widely known as a fearless reform champion. He tells Clark that he's willing to do anything to help, but Clark seems a bit bummed because there's not been a lot of progress despite his voluminous efforts. And this is kind of a funny panel because Clark is all slouched down in his chair and his head is resting on his palm and he's got this sad look on his face that tells me he's about 30 seconds away from putting on some Joy Division or whatever the 1940 equivalent was. So a week later, Clark makes another announcement saying that since the public hasn't stepped up to improve things, he has no choice but to go to the government. He soon gets a call from Roger Finch, shyster attorney with Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, 
who arranges to meet Clark and tries to convince him to stop pushing for the renewal of the slums. Clark dismisses him without question, and after he leaves, Finch puts in a call to some associates to take care of Clark. As Clark exits the office, the thugs, who somehow got the call from Finch and drove to the office in just the time it took for Clark to walk out of the building, try to run Clark down. But Clark sees the car speeding towards him. Whirling, he grabs the car and, still dressed as Clark, mind you, throws the car over the edge of a nearby bridge and into the water below, and no doubt killing the thugs inside, or at least severely injuring them. Assuming Finch was responsible for the attack, Clark returns to Finch's office and waits outside using his super hearing to listen in as Finch speaks with a man named Carraway, telling him that Clark will no longer be a problem. Clark immediately figures out that Carraway must be Stephen Carraway, the millionaire who owns the tenement property. With his new information, Clark pays a visit to Conklin, the politician from earlier, and shares the news with him. Unfortunately, though, once again using his super hearing, Clark learns that Conklin is also in league with Carraway and Finch, which leaves Clark no choice but to head to Washington. As Clark's plane takes off, and yes, Clark opted to fly in a plane to the nation's capital, which is odd, but more on that in my comments afterwards. Anyway, Clark's plane takes off, but is soon attacked by a second plane. Slipping out of the plane's emergency door, Clark switches to Superman and dives towards the attackers, soon slamming into it headfirst and destroying the plane. With the crisis averted, Clark grabs hold of the passenger plane and begins banging on the emergency door, and when the stewardess opens the door to let him back in and questions what happened, Clark claims that he simply fell out. Yeah, again, I, I just got nothing. The plane soon lands in Washington, and Clark deboards, much to the surprise of some thugs at the airport. Clark then hails a cab, but during the ride to the hotel, the cab begins to fill with gas. Apparently, though, it has no effect, as we soon find Clark delivering a stiff right hook to the fake cab driver's jaw. And when the driver revives, he is surprised to find both Clark and the cab gone. Don't think for a second, though, that things are going to ease up, because later that night, Clark receives a strange package at his hotel. However, his superhearing, which I just realized he's been using quite a bit in this story, but uh, his superhearing picks up that the package is making a ticking noise, and Clark throws it out the window and into the air just as it explodes. As Clark finally goes to bed, two men sneak into his room, but Clark counters with one lightning-fast punch, knocking both men unconscious. The attacks only leave Clark more determined, and the next day he visits... someone. We're not really told who, but in the one panel they spend on it, Clark apparently convinces this person to help. So, returning to Metropolis, Clark tells Taylor that the government is willing to put up the funds, but Taylor tells him the property owner, Carraway, is demanding a huge sum of money for the tenement property. With his options exhausted, he's left with only one choice. And this is finally a job for Superman. Paying a visit to Carraway, Superman demands that he sell the tenements at a reasonable price. When Carraway tells him to butt out, Superman takes Carraway to one of his own tenements and tells him, Here's where you're going to live, pal, whether you like it or not. And like it he does not. Carraway complains that the apartment is stuffy and cold and that the pipes don't work, and he pleads with Superman to let him go. But Superman refuses, saying he wants Carraway to know what it's really like to live there. Somehow escaping Superman's sight briefly, Carraway tosses a note out the window, which is found by a random boy and delivered to Finch. Meanwhile, Barbara passes by the apartment and happens to see Superman. As Superman is repeating his plan to keep Carraway locked in the apartment, two of Finch's men also show up, awful busy place, and begin shooting at Superman. The bullets have no effect on Superman, of course, but one ricochets, striking the gas furnace, and soon the entire apartment is engulfed in flames. As Finch's men scramble to get out, Superman looks out for Barbara, only to find that she's been grabbed by Carraway and forced out onto the fire escape. Superman leaps after the pair, but the escape gives way, and the two fall towards the street below. With only moments to save both, 
Superman grabs Barbara, placing her safely on the ground, and then whirls, leaps back up, and snags Caraway. With the slumlord under his arm, Superman heads back to Caraway's home. Once there, Caraway says he never realized the poor conditions his tenants had to live in, and promises Superman he'll do anything that needs done in order to fix it. The next day, Caraway summons Clark Kent and announces he's donating his land and tenements free to the city so that the area can be improved. The end. Well, mostly. We actually get two additional wrap-up panels. The first showing Conklin taking a train out of town and thinking to himself that he got a phone call from Superman warning him to resign and leave town. And the second with Caraway showing Clark and Barbara the rebuilt apartments and Barbara commenting, and we have Superman to thank for this miracle. It's interesting reading this story and then looking back at the Superman story from Action Comics number 8 and seeing the progression in both Siegel's storytelling as well as the portrayal of Superman and Clark Kent. In that story from Action Comics number 8, Superman encountered a group of delinquents that were being used as pawns by a fence, and he ends up getting the boys to correct their behavior and determines that, much like here, it's simply their environment that is to blame. And then he proceeds to tear down an entire block of tenements in order to force the government to build better housing. Action Comics number 8 was published less than a year and a half before this story. As I mentioned very briefly at the top of the show, Superman's powers have really evolved over the last two years. And this story really demonstrates, too, that more than just his powers have grown. I mean, this story obviously covers the same subject matter, but without being political about it, this story is just a much more mature approach to it. As I said when I covered the Action Comics story, which was back in Episode 8, I wasn't really a fan of that story. I mean, yes, it's a a defining and iconic moment of the Golden Age Superman, and we all love Superman smash through walls and knock down buildings, but to believably affect change, even in a fictional world where the character comes from another planet and can throw cars like you or I would throw a football, there just needs to be more to it. I love that we see Superman here using his role as Clark Kent to try and fix the problem. He writes articles, he goes on the radio, he makes movies, he even appeals to Washington himself. Clark Kent does all these things, and it's only after those fail, and being unable to appeal to any basic human decency that might be in Caraway, it's only then that as a very last resort, Superman steps in with the strong arm. And I just love seeing Clark Kent shine like that in these stories. He's a very important part of the mythology and the character beyond the man behind the curtain, so to speak. He's more than the person Superman pretends to be when he's not wearing a cape. Even when Clark isn't the quote-unquote real persona, just as Superman can do things that Clark Kent never could, Clark Kent can do things that Superman never could, too. And on that note, I can't help but wonder if this story wasn't, at least in part, influenced by the radio show. As Charlie and I have noted, Clark is a much bigger character there than he has been in the comics or the newspapers to this point. And this really is a Clark Kent story. I mean, we, ha- we, we have Superman coming in to do his flashy superheroics a few times, but he's not too much involved with the story otherwise until the very end. And even Clark's portrayal is different. Some of it could be because we're seeing so much more of Clark here, but I don't think that's the entire reason. When Clark and Barbara are visiting her dad in the hospital, the lawyer shows up and Clark literally throws him out the door. Would the Clark Kent, as written before the radio show, have done anything like that? Not likely. Later on, Clark pays for the damages to get the lawyer off Lewis's back, and even lends a hand to get Tommy a job at the planet. I mean, rather than depending on Superman to bully people into doing the right thing, here we have Clark being our main character, with Superman only coming in to do the the Superman stuff, which is quite a switch compared to the stories we've covered till now, outside of the radio show. I mainly had a note about this concerning Clark paying for the damages, but it really applies to much of what Clark does throughout the story in that we see Clark 
doing what's right to fix the ills of society around him, which shows that you don't need superpowers to be a hero. They don't make a statement about that in the comics, but that will come up more and more as we get into World War II. I've been reading the hardcover collection of the Newsboy Legion stories that DC put out uh, last year, which are fun and entertain- entertaining stories if you're, you know, want to check them out. Uh, but these stories are all from the spring of 1942 to the spring of 1944, and pretty much every story ends with a plug to buy war bonds. So that kind of thing definitely is coming. Of course, as much as I liked the story, it wasn't all great. Um, my biggest issue is that the last quarter or so of the show, of the show, of the story, seems really rushed. The last twelve strips, once Clark uh, leaves for Washington, there is a lot of stuff that happens in these panels, including the climax to everything Siegel had been building over the last thirty, and it's all squished into just twelve strips. And while that's okay for the the airplane attack which I actually had other issues with that I'll get to in just a minute, and the attacks on Clark while he's in Washington, it means his meeting in Washington is reduced to one panel. And given the build-up to it, I really think it deserved more than a panel of Clark saying, I've shown there's a need, will you help us? And an unnamed person, who I presume is a politician, again, they don't say, saying, we will. And then Clark gets back to Metropolis, and we have the sequence where he takes Caraway to the tenements. The amount of time spent on that is fine. I mean, we really didn't need to see Superman torturing that guy more. But Conklin is quickly explained away in the next-to-last panel, and Finch is never dealt with, even though he was in league with Conklin and Caraway. My, my first inclination to explain the rushed ending was that possibly the syndicate was maybe putting pressure on Siegel to wrap up the story since this is longer than average. But while the next storyline is quite a bit shorter, after that we're going to have longer ones. So I I just really don't know what this is. It could be that they just didn't like the storyline, maybe because it was so Clark Kent heavy or because it is recycling themes that were in the comics from two years ago. I just don't know. The, the airplane sequence, though, yeah, Clark just falls out of the airplane. Sure, he does. <laughs> That's a very Silver Age-ish explanation for excusing Clark's absence. Really, I think the story would have been better had the entire sequence just been cut, because at the end of it all, and, and even putting the I fell out stuff aside, it, it just leaves a lot of questions. First and foremost, why did Clark fly? Yes, I know this is a Clark Kent story, but it felt kind of forced because we've seen Clark traveling to distant places under his own power. Of course, back in Action Comics number one, he took a train to DC, so maybe Siegel intended Metropolis to be farther away from DC than it actually ended up being. Of course, we did have that note that Metropolis was in New York, but that came after Action Comics number one. But anyway, we know Clark can travel faster than a train under his own power. So, I, I just don't understand it. It's just all a bit inconsistent, and, and it kind of feels like the, like the scene was shoehorned in there. But beyond that, the attack raises other issues. I mean, I'm not sure who was supposed to be behind it. Conklin, Carraway, and Finch don't really seem the types to have access to fighter planes. And moreover, even in the March of 1940, which was pre-Pearl Harbor... Wouldn't this raise serious security issues when a passenger airline is inexplicably attacked in U.S. airspace? Even discounting the war that's bubbling overseas, I think that should have set off major alarm bells. And maybe it did, but it's just never addressed in the story. But, oh, how can I miss this? Clark kills at least three people in this story. The two in the car that he threw over the bridge as well as however many were in the airplane, which had to be at least one. But despite those complaints, I still liked the story quite a bit. The sequence at the end, uh, with the tenement catching on fire and Superman making the dynamic rescue of Barbara and Caraway, was pretty exciting. I don't really think my synopsis did it justice, but sometimes you just have to read these things to really get the full excitement of it. 
And like I said, I loved how Clark played a much bigger role here. I really hope we get more of this type of portrayal as we go forward. This whole story, I think, would have played out well on the radio, which is another thing that makes me wonder if Siegel wasn't heavily influenced by it. Speaking of, though, they're still not calling Superman's aerial maneuvering flight here in the printed material, but he's definitely long past anything that could be uh, done by a mere leap. The most obvious example is when Clark's plane is attacked. He jumps out of the passenger plane, and we see him in a what is now a traditional flight-like pose headed down towards the rogue plane. But in the next panel, he's hitting the thing head-on and then somehow makes his way back up to the passenger plane. And even at the beginning of the story, we see Superman in the air high above what is at least a seven- or eight-story building. He then sees Lewis go after Barbara and immediately streaks down to save her, implying that he controls not only his momentum but his direction. So even though they're not calling it flight here, I think it's safe to assume that we're in full-on flight mode, or at the very least, really, really close. The art in the story, I think, is really great, too. There was nice, bold lines and, and good detail in the background. Uh, Superman looks great throughout. He, he's really taken on a more barreled chest here, and I, and I really like that. And the other figures look great as well. Superman's S on, on both his chest and the cape when it's there has retained its large shape and really it gets even bigger and and somewhat more rounded towards the end of the story so all around just just really good stuff this storyline has been reprinted like all the daily strips we've covered recently only once and that is in the second volume of dailies from kitchen sink but it's also online for free at dccomics.com and like always i will put a link to that in the show notes My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Superman, a name known throughout the world to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? Men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. Like I said, this episode I wanted to present a spotlight on Helen Choate, who was the second actress to portray Lois Lane on the Superman radio show. She was the second actress to portray the character in any medium, actually. I've prepared myself that some people I might want to spotlight on the show, as much as I might want to, I I just might not be able to. Uh, When we're talking about people whose involvement with a character was more than 70 years ago, and limited at that, sometimes the information about their life simply isn't readily available. And such was the case with Helen Choate. 
When I began my research, I found very little information. And complicating matters is that I found two different spellings for her last name. C-H-O-A-T-E is the most frequent spelling, but my more reliable sources spelled it C-H-O-A-T. As someone who has done a lot of genealogy research, varied name spellings aren't anything new. Less so usually with the French and English origin names, but it's it's one of those things, and, and part of the fun, really. Anyway, long story short, just not a lot of information out there that I uncovered about Helen Choate. The largest source was an article in the Connecticut Post, published about 11 months after her death. Since this was literally about 80% of the info I found, I'm going to change things up this time and just read the article. It's not really that long, Uh, really about the same length as an average spotlight feature, but I'm going to read it, and then afterward I'll share some info I found that wasn't in the feature. This article is from, like I said, the Connecticut Post, and it was written by Vinti Singh, staff writer for the Post, and published around December 26, 2010. She was a master of elocution and had a voice that earned her stardom in old-time radio. Helen Louise Choate played Bunny Wilson in the radio soap Pretty Kitty Kelly, which had a three-year run in the late 1930s, and she had roles in The Witter Brown, Ma Perkins, and The Saga of Helen Trent. And she also did primetime dramas like The Mercury Theater with Orson Welles. After radio shows began to dwindle in popularity, Choate relied on her intelligence and wit to continue to reinvent herself into a television personality. She did several commercials for coffee, soap powder, and the telephone company. She went on to produce successful plays in New York City, translate Russian plays, contribute to several books on metaphysics, and help Roots author Alex Haley when he was an unknown writer. But to get her first radio show in Boston, Choate had to drop out of Emerson College when she was still a teenager to accept the job. Choate was one of 500 women who auditioned for the show but one of her lifelong regrets was not earning her diploma, said Michael Manello, a Fairfield resident. Her father told her the job was too good of an opportunity to miss, but he said, promise me at some point you'll go finish your degree, Manello said. Manello and Choate lived in the same apartment building on Sheridan Square in New York City when he was attending the New York University School of Law. They became fast friends, and he and his sister Linda grew to become her adopted family. On her 100th birthday... While she was dining at Ponte Vecchio in Fairfield with family and friends, a representative from Emerson College surprised her with an honorary degree. Local television stations replayed her reaction when she remarked, Oh my, it looks legitimate. Choate passed away on January 28th at the age of 102. She was a really lovely, unusually lovely person and had a very elegant way about her, said Orel Fair, who knew Choate when she was in her mid-90s and served as a receptionist for a dance school in New York City. But she was also level-headed and down-to-earth. And she was magnanimous, Michael Manello said. Once Choate landed a big radio role, but she knew another girl who had auditioned for it too. The other actress had two children and was down on her luck, so Choate approached the directors and asked them to give it to her instead because she needed it more. I used to say to Helen, you're too nice, you need to take care of yourself, Michael Manello said. Although Choate lived most of her life independently, she married a Reader's Digest editor, Edward Von Holten Schmidt, when she was in her 50s. She met Von Holten Schmidt when he gave a lecture she attended at NYU. He passed a few years later, but while he was alive, he helped Haley edit Roots. While Haley was struggling to make ends meet, Choate would give him little jobs to do and lent him money when he needed it. Choate was also friends with socialite Alice Tully, after whom the Alice Tully Hall in Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts in New York City is named. Together, they started a metaphysical foundation that distributed pamphlets and published a magazine. Choate continued to live in New York City until she was 98 when she took a fall in her apartment and injured her hip. Choate lived with the Manillos in the Fairfield home before moving into the Cambridge Manor in Fairfield. Although she was physically impaired, Choate's mind was sharp until her last days, Linda Manello said. She had a great vocabulary, and she'd beat you at Scrabble every time, even when she was 100. And again, that was an article by Venti Singh of the Connecticut Post. Interestingly, the article doesn't mention her role in Superman. 
And I'd say this is likely because while it's the most significant role she played as far as this show is concerned, relatively speaking, it was actually a very minor role when compared to the rest of her career. Like with Raleigh Bester before her, Choate was not in the role of Lois Lane for long, and while Singh's article lists quite a few credits, it's really only the tip of the iceberg. Another fairly well-known old-time radio role that Choate had was that of Patsy Bowen in Nick Carter, Master Detective. Choate portrayed the lead character's girlfriend from the beginning of the show in April 1943 through sometime in mid-1946. Coincidentally, the supporting cast of Nick Carter also included Michael Fitzmaurice, who will replace Bud Collier in the roles of Superman and Clark Kent on the Superman radio program near the end of its run. As well, the show also starred Bill Johnstone, who is known to have auditioned for the role of Superman. Speaking of connections, the article mentions Cho's portrayal of Bunny Wilson in Pretty Kitty Kelly. That show, which ran from 1937 to 1940, also starred Bud Collier in the role of Inspector Michael Conway, which paired the two actors not long before their roles together on Superman. Other roles that Choate held included that of Jane Elliott on Eno Crime Club and Alan Jocelyn on Marie, the Little French Princess, which were both in the early 1930s, and Joyce Miller on Rosemary, which ran from 1944 to 1955. She also made appearances on Quiet Please, Radio City Playhouse, Theater 5, Roger Kilgore Public Defender, Gangbusters, Lights Out, and the Lux Video Theater. As the article mentioned, Choate dropped out of Emerson College in order to take her first job, which was as a researcher, copywriter, and commentator for radio station WASN in Boston. While she never returned to finish her studies, in 2007 she received an honorary bachelor's degree in literary interpretation from the school. Choate worked for WASN for about two years before soon moving to New York to begin her acting career. After her time in radio and eventually migrating to television for a short time, she eventually left the industry entirely and became an editor with the Macy Foundation in the WW Air Science Series. Following her husband's death, she enrolled in several business courses, eventually taking a position as executive secretary with Stroheim and Roman Fabrics, where she served until the mid-1980s when she retired. Having been born in Boston, Massachusetts on October 17, 1907, Choate died in Fairfield, Connecticut on January 28, 2010, at the age of 102. Presenting Supergirl's Cosmic Adventures a podcast dedicated to the continuing adventures of the Maid of Might herself, Supergirl. Episodes can be found at supergirlpodcast.blogspot.com. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. I want to thank you all for joining me this time. Next episode, 
you know what? I'm actually not going to tell you what I'm going to do next episode. Uh, it's going to be a little something special, and it'll have to be a surprise, but I think you'll like it. Um, I know I'm looking forward to it. Still, thank you for joining me this episode. Please feel free to drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I'd really love to hear your thoughts on the show and the stories that were covered. Also, I invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and images from this story and, and show notes from past stories. At the site, you'll also find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. You can follow the show on both sites to talk back or get updates whenever I've got show-related news. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so via the RSS feed and iTunes, and you'll find links to both of those at the site as well. Don't forget to stop by the Superman homepage and that the show is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network where you'll not only find updates for this show but a whole bunch of other Superman-related podcasts which you'll no doubt enjoy. So definitely swing by and check it out when you have some free time. Lastly, I invite you to check out my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weeder. We've got two episodes out so far, plus a special episode where we looked at the premiere of Green Lantern animated series. And our third episode will be out in about two weeks. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. She was a master of elocution and had a voice that earned her stardom in old-time radio. Helen Louise Choate played Bunny Wilson in the radio soap Pretty Killy... Helen Louise Choate played Bunny Wilson in the radio soap Pretty Killy... Pretty Killy... Ah! I cannot say that! Pretty Kitty Kelly, 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 Pretty Kitty Kelly... idea why I have such a hard time saying that name. Apparently the show was about a woman who came to America but then got amnesia and had to solve some murders or something. It, it was like a, a cross between an, an adventure show, a detective show, and a romance show. But also soap opera. I don't know. Anyway, you'd think they would have given her an easier name to say, like Jane or... Sarah, or or even Sarah Jane, for you Doctor Who fans. Or Bob. I, well, maybe not Bob, because, yeah, that'd be weird. But anyway, see you later, folks. <laughs>